0: Decision on our part that they're here during worship. It's just good for them to see their mom and dad and adults worship, and they learn from watching examples. So we love them, and I also love seeing so many of them come up. That Lisa didn't have enough ice cream cards, so she has more in the back, and uh, they'll all get they'll all get their ice cream card. We make sure of that. Um, <clears throat> I, I'm glad Lisa mentioned it. Today's the last in our series. Um, in this series, I've been doing about security. And uh, next week, we'll start a whole fresh new series on the promises of God. And I'm just really enjoying my preparation time for that. And so I encourage you to remember that that's where we're going next. Today is the, um, the last of the, in the series. It's been 10, 10 series, 10 messages on security. We started with talking about eternal security and security uh, for, uh, in the church and security for your family. And, and uh, last week we started talking about the issue of security, the scary part that we talked about, um, um, some of the terrorism things that have gone on in the world. And today we'll be talking about it a little bit, but not as much as we did last time. But it's, uh, there will be some involvement. I'll talk about Islam a little bit. But let's start with a proverb. 15, verse 8, I chose. The prayer of the upright is the Lord's delight. Great. That's great. That means the Lord looks forward to hearing from you. That's a really, really good deal. I wonder what you would do if during worship, you know, we're singing songs and you're looking up there and you're reading the words on the screen. If um, in the middle of this, you know, happening the last few minutes, if Osama bin Laden had walked in and sat down next to you. Now, he's dead, so that would have been not just assumed that he wasn't still dead. But if he had walked in and sat down next to you, what would you have done? Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I wonder what would you have said. You know, I'm, I think I might have left the water running in the bathtub or something. You know, run for the car. Would you move to a different seat? Would you put your arm around him and say, hey, welcome to Crossroads Church? What would you do? I mean, um, I, I'm guessing... There would be, if you knew who he was, you probably wouldn't. You know, you know who Osama bin Laden is, right? He was the kind of the leader of Al Qaeda. He was one of the primary architects of the attack on 9/11. So this is someone who's intent on destroying. You know what th- this is: our freedom to worship God and so forth. I-, I think my reaction to him wouldn't be good, right? I mean, I mean, I think I would probably be reacting kind of like. Um, a guy named Ananias who lived in Damascus when he found out that God wanted him to talk to a guy named Saul of Tarsus and so i mean i guess i want to ask you the question who is it in your mind don't answer this out loud but who is it in your mind would never get saved an impossible save who is it i mean i mean you think uh, this that person is never going to get saved Maybe it's not somebody with an international terrorist, but you, there are people that you know. You know there's, there's just no way this person could ever, will ever come to Christ. I just see the fruit of their life, there's just no, nothing there. I mean, I think we probably all can think of people like that. I mean, you know, I think so. Maybe, maybe you think back to, you know, in your high school, there was some particular person that you were sure was the devil in your class at school, or college, or at work. Uh, you know, they're just never going to have a soft heart towards Christ. And you know, um, and I, I, when I, you know, sometimes I run into people that knew me in high school, in my BC days. It's not that I'm that old that I lived BC. Okay, it's the other kind of BC before, before Christ in my life days. Um, you know, and every once in a while I run into one that I haven't seen since high school and. They ask me what I do, and when I tell them, it's like, okay, that's funny. What do you really do? You know, kind of, and because I was that guy, I think, in a lot of people's minds. And uh, anyway, so there was a point where at one point where Jesus was talking to his disciples, and they were talking about how hard it is. Um, the, the subject was they were talking about how hard it is for a rich man to enter, king, enter, 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 enter heaven. And they finally asked him the question and said, well then who can be saved? And he answered them in uh, Matthew 19, this is in the last part of Matthew 19, he said, but with man it is impossible. They were talking about salvation. With man it is impossible, with, but with God all things are possible. And uh, today I want to take a look at the flip side of where we were last week. Last week we were talking about the threat of radical Islam. And this week I want to talk a little bit more about the opportunities that are out there. And, I mean, because I, God is doing actually pretty amazing things right now in the Muslim world. And I think it's unprecedented. Um, one, one source that I looked at, which I don't typically read Al Jazeera, but I was curious to say what Arabic sources would say about this, uh, this topic. And one source said, that I found on Al Jazeera said that every hour, every hour, On the average, every hour, 667 Muslims convert to Christianity in Africa. That's a lot. That's 16,000. 16,000 of them every every. uh, You know, I mean, around the world, give their give their lives. That's just a lot. That's a lot of hunger and thirst for the good news. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. I mean, we're going to see in Acts chapter 9, we're going to, we're going to look at a guy um, that we would know as Paul, but before that, he was known as Saul. He came from a town called Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus, and he was a first century terrorist. You know, I mean, he was a really, really bad man before, um, before he was converted, before he became the great apostle, prophet, writer of much of the New Testament that we know today. He was he was that he was that and, and before he was before he was transformed, he was he was on his own personal holy war. And he was try, he was out to exterminate the Christians and put out the light of Christianity. That was really what it was after. And so today, I really believe that the Lord is, is, is wanting to nudge our hearts on this whole topic. Last week, I know it was kind of scary and didn't mean to scare you, um, but um, I, I want us to look, I think the Holy Spirit wants us to be willing to and available to look at people differently than we have before. and Because nobody, under any circumstances, is beyond the Lord's reach. Ever. Nobody ever. Um, Lisa tells me I'm a little bit of a nerd and i'm sure that's not true in spite of her comments i do want to mention isaac's first law isaac newton's first law i call him isaac he and i are on a first name i call um, his isaac newton's first law of motion okay basically states this that an object at motion will stay in motion and an object at rest will stay at rest unless it's acted on by an outside force that passed muster for you science teachers Okay, are all the nerds in agreement, that's Isaac Newton's first law of motion? Okay, so in other words, it's going to keep doing what it's doing unless an outside force exerts on it. And um, I think if we use that, if we, if that, that, that is a law of nature, I mean it's everywhere, and um, it kind of has the ability to be picked up out of the physics world and put into the heart world so to speak. I think we can p- apply that same principle to look at the life of, the, um, with, of Saul of Tarsus. And it's a, it's a familiar story. If outside It took outside forces pressed upon him to see him be compelled to change. And I think that the law of inertia or the force of inertia is at work on our hearts too. We just keep right on going unless there's an outside pressure, and we don't change unless there's an outside pressure. So beginning in, um, in, in verse 1 of Acts chapter 9, let's take a look at this impossible case of somebody ever getting saved, Paul. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, by the way, the way, it wasn't called Christianity quite yet, it was called the way, all right? So people who were believers. If he found any who, who were of the way, whether men or women, no matter who they were, if they follow Christ, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So the first thing that we notice is that he was an angry man. Okay. He's breathing threats and murder. How do you breathe threats and murders? I don't know how you breathe threats and murder. He's breathing threats and murder. He's angry. The first time we ever meet Saul of Tarsus in scripture, we find him in Acts chapter seven, and he's he's at the stoning of a young man named Stephen, who and it says it says um, in, in Acts chapter seven that the people who came to stone Stephen, Stephen was this guy who would, would not stop talking about Jesus. He wouldn't stop saying that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus, you want to be saved? Jesus is the way. He wouldn't stop it. And the people, the leaders didn't want to hear it. And so they were taking him out. They were going to stone him to death. They were executing him. That's the first time we see Saul who becomes Paul. That's the first time we see him mentioned in scriptures. And here's what scripture says. It says that those who were doing the stoning laid their coats at at, at Saul's feet. Okay. And it says that Saul was consenting. To his death. And in verse, um, in chapter 8, verse 3, in Acts 8, three, we see that it says that Saul made havoc of the church entering every house and dragging off men and women. This word havoc is a very strong word that could literally be, literally be translated devastate. Okay? He's, he's, this is a scorched earth policy. With, he's going after everybody he can get after him, and it's a terminal thing. So, We meet Saul and he's this radical, angry man and he's pleased to see and help kill a young man named Stephen by stoning. Now, it's like he's there at this scene and they're laying their coats at his feet. It's kind of like what he's saying there is, hey, let me hold your coats for you because then your shoulders will be available and loose and you'll be able to pick up a bigger stone and throw it harder. Get him! Let me hold your coats. I mean, this is... This is, you know, this, which I think is, I don't think that that little mention in scripture is because the Lord wants you and me to know who the coat check dude was, <laughs> right? He's wanting you to, to, you and me to see what a, what a, what a, you know, he's a player here. He's a part of this persecution and the killing and the devastation of Christians. And, and back in verse one, it says he's still breathing out threats. Did you catch the word still? I mean, he's still doing it. Only now he wants to expand what he's been doing, this devastation, all the way up to Damascus, which is about 160 miles to the north of where they are. He wants to take this murder show on the road. He's, um, you know, he's, he's, let's go. And we can learn more about this guy. There's a lot of characteristics about him. In fact, we can find something else not in this particular text, but inferred in another part of the text that we'll look at. Not only was he angry, but he was pretty wealthy. Um, Saul was from a town called Tarsus, which is an influential city in Turkey at the time. And his parents sent him from Tarsus to Jerusalem to a very exclusive private school to be taught under a tutor named Gamaliel. And we read that in Acts 22. And, and okay, so imagine, okay, so he was sent away to an expensive, exclusive private school. The, our equivalent, There's not really an equivalent that I can think of around here. Um, there are some very, very expensive private schools not talking about colleges. I'm talking about just you know regular primary, elementary, up through high school. There are some very expensive ones in our country, and some of them are notable. Um, there's one in Seattle. It's called Lakeside School. Um, it's it ranked in the top ten in the country. And um, uh, the tuition there, if you want to send your children there, you can probably, if you got the $32,000 a year for the tuition. That's a less expensive one. However, what it has going for it is, is uh, both... Bill Gates and Paul Allen went to school there together, and that worked out okay for them, I guess. Anyway, so, um, it, I mean, so it's like sending someone away. There, there are some, that's, that's a cheap one, by the way, if you want to send your kids to, um, I think it's called St. Paul's, it's in New Hampshire. I think the tuition there is like fifty-five dollars or $60,000 a year for a grade school. That's more money than Lisa and I have, at least <laughs> in my pockets anyway. So, I mean, okay, he was sent away to a very expensive and exclusive private school, and... Um, and I mention his wealth because this guy, I wanna, I'm going to show you how many things he had stacked against the likelihood that he would ever get saved. Okay, I mean, Jesus made this comment at one point. He said that it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Now, little kind of bit of a rabbit trail, I guess a camel trail here on this one. Um, I've heard it taught in churches before or somewhere. I don't know where I heard it that there were gates coming into the city and they had a lower threshold height and the the, the, the camels would actually have to get down on their knees and, and crawl to, that's not actually good scholarship so if you've heard that don't pass that on to people it's not i don't think it's accurate just anybody here ever hear that before Yeah, I mean, I don't know how that kind of stuff gets around there, but the plain and simple truth is there's never been any um, archaeological gate that was ever in any way uh, called uh, the eye of the needle that that archaeologists have actually found. And it doesn't make sense, because if the other gates weren't the the short one, you would just drive your camel through the other gate, wouldn't you? (laughs) Anyway, so whatever. Um, Okay, so But what Jesus was saying was that easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, Jesus was using a literary device there. They had a common saying in their day that was a little bit different. That saying, which came from the Ottoman Empire, basically said, it's easier for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle, right? It was just a description of something that was impossible. Nearly, nearly impossible. And so it's kind of easy to see. I think we can think sometimes, um, this is not me ranting against success. I'm not, I'm not. It's fine to be blessed financially. But it's easy to see how sometimes wealthy people can feel um, insulated from a sense of need. Because when you have, when money, the pressure of money is not in your life, when you have the pressure of too much money, I mean, you can literally, in many circumstances, buy yourself out of most problems, or many problems. I mean, if I'm discouraged because it's raining, I can solve that by a personal jet and a trip to the sun. If I got enough money to do it. That's why the Lord doesn't give me enough money to do it. Because <laughs> yesterday afternoon, I would have been, you know. <laughs> anyway. So, and in fact, very, a, a lot of notable people in radical Islam come from very wealthy backgrounds. I'll give you a couple. I'll just mention a couple. One is the guy I mentioned before, Osama bin Laden. Um, came from a very, very wealthy Saudi family. And... Um, there are were, there were many others. Another a notable figure in Islam was, a, was Muhammad, the prophet. At a young age, at about 24, he married a very wealthy woman. And, and basically his their own biography about him is that he had no need to do anything, so he would spend most of his time out wandering in the desert contemplating. And um, a lot of times that's what happens. Some of these um, terrorists, they've spent a lot of their time growing up with wealth and time on their hands. And um, they decide to use their resources for the purposes of radical Islam. So, so okay, back to Saul. So we know he's, he's angry, he's breathing threats and murder, and he apparently comes from money. He also, we also know that he's scholarly. He, he, he attend, I told, mentioned before he attended this private mentoring program um, in Jerusalem under a guy named Gamaliel. Now, that particular education setting would have had him... Um, Uh, a very rigid upbringing. He would have been forced to memorize large parts of Scripture, most of the Old Testament, if not all of it. And he would have been able to recite it. He would have been able to just draw off of it, just, you know, recite something and, um, from memory, he would have been able to handle question and answer sessions. He would have been taught in the skills of debate to be able to take on you know, other ideas. And, and he was just able to answer tough questions about rhetoric. So, so the, later we'll read about Paul um, in the in scripture. We read about uh, that he becomes Paul the Apostle before he, he, um, God changed his name. He's still Saul. But scripture says that later it tells us that he stands um, on Mars Hill in Athens, at the Areopagus. Now, Mars Hill in Athens. Okay, this was a place where... I think we got a picture of... Maybe... There we go. Um, And so this big rock is called Mars Hill. It's hard to see because it's up on the wall. But in the lower portion, there's a big tall tree in the center to the left of that down below it. It's hard to see that there's like a staircase going up. There's actually today a bronze plaque there. And on that bronze plaque is... um, some of Paul's speech that he that he made there, which is recorded in Acts chapter 17, it's interesting that the the that the actual speech is on a plaque there at, at Mars Hill, famous place. If you were to go there today, um, you'd see tourists running around, going up and down on it, and so forth. But it was a place where people would go and discuss and debate and talk. And um, you know, it, it was he was pretty remarkable in terms of his command of of knowledge because he would get into these discussions and. Um, as he's speaking to the people of Athens there, he's, he's able to quote from memory um, philosophers that had their philosophers, Greek philosophers who had been dead and poets who had been dead for hundreds of years. Um, in the passages there, there are quotes from uh, um, a guy named Eretus of Soli and another guy from, uh, named Epi, Ep, Epimedes, forget it, some, another name with an E. <laughs> Epimenides. Epimenides, you believe that? Okay, Epimenides, I got it right. Okay, he's known for the, what's called the liar's paradox. You know, who, okay, here's a paradox for you. This is a waste of time, but I'll do it for you anyway. Everything I'm saying is a lie. Think that through for a minute. It's a paradox. If I say that to you, am I lying there? Because then that would make that a true statement, right? That's a paradox. Okay, anyway, so Paul is able to quote these guys to the Greek from their past and their culture offhand. They make a statement, and he pulls one of their people out and gives it to him in their answer. Pretty impressive stuff. it kind of be like going to lunch with Lori over here, and out of the blue, she starts quoting Shakespeare. <laughs> she told me she can quote. And so, like, I mean, it's like, wow, look at the brain on Lori. She can quote Shakespeare. <laughs> Am I going to pay for this? Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> anyway, the reason I, I, I bring that up is because, thank you, Lori, for being my crash test dummy. Wait a minute. Maybe I'm the crash test dummy. My wife's on defense here now too. So So Paul had a lot of knowledge. (laughs) And here's why I bring that up. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8 tells us that knowledge puffs up. It can puff up. And kind of like wealth, a lot of people who have a lot of knowledge can kind of feel insulated sometimes from their need from Christ. They, they, you know, they think, well, I know more about, you know, I'm more than the average bear, and um, I'm a little bit smarter, and I don't, you know, they, they start thinking that, and it becomes very easy to rationalize away spiritual truth. Something I would know a would never do. <laughs> Thanks for being... I'm sorry, please don't be mean to me. No. <laughs> But, but sometimes knowledge is used as a, as a medium to hide behind um, you know, spiritual truth, and, um, and, and intellect like does that. So something else about Solitar says, okay, so he's not only angry and wealthy and scholarly, but this guy's devout. You know, so, and I'm using that in terms of his religious, you know, he's devoted to the cause. Scripture tells us he was a Pharisee, okay? In Philippians 3, he gives us his background. He's talking, now he's not bragging, He's just saying, here's my background, and he says, in Philippians 3, he says, concerning the law, I was a Pharisee, and concerning righteousness, which is in the law, I was blameless. He's saying, you know, I, I, if you knew what a Pharisee was, that was, the, that's like, see these stripes? See the stars on my epaulets here? You know, and I, I did what I was supposed to do as a Pharisee, which is impressive. He, as a Pharisee, you would have to know all of the major doctrinal precepts of the Old Testament. I mean, he would be well-drilled, and, and, and these people gave themselves to the study of Scripture. Now, maybe you have noticed that religious people can be some of the hardest people to see come to Christ. You know, they, 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 they kind of tuck themselves in behind their works and, and their religion. And many times they feel perfectly safe spiritually because they've got so many check marks on their checklist. You know, I go to church, I, I'm good enough, I don't really need to do anything more than this. And sometimes religious can people, people can be some of the hardest to see that they have a need of a savior. I'm talking about Saul of Tarsus here, and, and this really describes him. And as a religious person, Saul of Tarsus is now using his religion to justify his hatred and what he's trying to do. He's, his own religious convictions give him permission somehow to exterminate and kill Christians and followers of Jesus. Today, if your faith, I know it's not your faith, but if, in, our, in our world, if your faith is Islam and you are a serious and a devout follower of Islam and you follow the Quran. Here are a couple of verses from the Quran. I shared several last week. I'm not going to share as many this week, but surah, which is their word for chapter, surah 9, verse 30, here it says this, may Allah destroy Christians and Jews. By the way, surah 9, chapter 9 out of 117 is one of the later um, chapters which gives it authority over earlier chapters. We'll talk about that in a bit. Here's another one from chapter um, Surah 9, verse 5. This is Ayat Saif. This is the verse of the sword. Fight and slay the pagans wherever you find them and seize them, beleaguer them, and lie in wait for them in every stratagem of war. That is the verse that is most commonly used by terrorists to say, this is why it's okay for me to blow up a bomb on a bus. And, you know, um, you know it's, it's a famous word, the, the, verse, the verse of the sword. And um, many, many, many Muslims are very, very serious and devout followers of their faith. So I want to take just a moment here and run through um, the expected devotional life of, a, uh, of Muslims worldwide. Okay, although there are lots of sects, these are some common things among, in the Muslim world. It's called the five pillars of Islam. Number one is called the Shahada. Which, which, which is their declaration of faith. It's the phrase, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Now, they believe that utterance is so holy, it should only be shared in Arabic. And that phrase is so holy, and they share it, and they, they, they do several things with it. They whisper it into the ears of babies. And they whisper it into the ears of the aged and all lifelong in between, they recite it over and over and over. The, the, uh, the shahada. The second, the second pillar is the salah, the prayer. Now, you see pictures of this five times a day at specific given times. The faithful are supposed to turn and face Mecca and pray. We talked a little bit about Mecca last week. And there are very, very specific motions and positions like, you can be on your knees, but you cannot be on your heels, you can't be on your... Rump. There's several things you do, and down you go, and up you go, and there's a whole sequence to it. But five times at specific times, you, you pray um, facing Mecca. The, the number third pillar is called the psalm, S-A-W-M. Sounds like our psalm, it's a different word, psalm, and that's fasting. The primary time of, of the observance of the psalm is during what's called Ramadan. You've probably heard that word. And it goes um, for about a month. I say about because it's based on a lunar cycle. And it occurs um, in that time frame from, from, from sunrise to sunset. So they fast, no eating, no drinking, no sexual relations in that time. However, what they do to get through that time is they, have, they typically rise up early and have a big feast before sunrise. And then another big one after sunset. And that's why they will celebrate when they um, they, they celebrate when they see the, the, the new moon. Um, I don't know if you if you've studied this and you you see images at times of the crescent moon. Okay, there are things going on there, but that's a cel- point of celebration because as soon as they see that crescent moon, it's the, and and so so off they go. The fourth pillar is called the zakat, and it's compulsory giving. They're 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 required to give 2.5 percent of their income, and they're supposed to give it in the community with which they've they've earned it. Now if you're thinking 2.5, that's, that's a pretty good deal. Compared to, you know, Pastor Terry up there, he says, the word of God says 10%. Yes, it does. But I want you to rem- remember, if you think that 2.5 sounds like a good deal, it, it offers a whole lot less as well. <laughs> Never make jokes about money in church. A pastor should know not to do that. Okay. And the fifth pillar is called the Hajj. And that is the pilgrimage to Mecca. Every faithful follower is supposed to make a pilgrimage to Mecca at least once um, in their lifetime. So those are the five pillars and that's expected of that. But here's this. Here's what I want you to understand. There are all these things they're supposed to do. And even if a Muslim is religious and dedicated and, and devout and resolute and does all of those things carefully and, and, and they do it all right, there is still no guarantee that they'll be admitted to heaven or to to paradise. That judgment of whether they get in or not is an arbitrary decision of of, of Allah and no one can predict what he'll decide. Not even Muhammad. In fact, by the statements of Muhammad, even he didn't know if he would go to heaven. He made that statement in in, uh, Surah 46, verse 9. I've looked at it. I've read it. So if... The founder, Muhammad, is unsure that he'll get to paradise. How can any Muslim have any assurance that they'll get to paradise either? Well, here they have an answer to that question. And the answer is this. Surah 3, 157 basically says that if, if any Muslim, whether you are good or bad, die in service in jihad for Allah, Jihad means struggle. Then you're guaranteed paradise. So there's no guarantee. You can do all the stuff right. You can pray the five times. You can Ramadan fast. You can do all the things you're going to do. You may or may not get in, but here's how you guarantee it. You die in jihad for Allah. Instantly admitted. So last week, I mentioned a theological principle um, that until you understand it, you really cannot understand the mind of Islam. And it's, it's a topic, and the word is called abrogation. You don't have to remember that word, but I want to tell you about that. In, in, in Arabic, it's nasq and um, abrogation. It means the um, annulling, annulling, or, or it's like the changing of a law by enacting a new one. So Allah, by a new statement, can negate, nullify, abrogate one of his previously made statements. Now, the Quran, where the Quran came from was was supposedly revealed to Muhammad over a long period, 23 years. It's not a long book. It's probably in length similar to our whole New Testament, okay? 23 years supposedly revealed to Muhammad over that time. And certain early verses, when you compare them to later verses on the same topic, Prescribed different resolutions. They're contradictory. They contradict each other. And uh, scholars in the Quran have, you know, has 114 chapters. 71 of the chapters have abrogated verses in them. In fact, um, uh, Islamic scholars have recognized and listed already 550 abrogated, canceled, changed verses in the whole Quran. 550 of the verses there. Oh, didn't mean it. So, um, you know, when you look at it, the, the scholars would kind of put them all into one category, but there's an exception. I'm going to say they've got two different categories. The two categories of abrogated verses um, would be this. One, Muhammad's mistakes... Okay? Here's why I call it mistakes. That's a charitable way of describing it. Um, well, here's one example. You may have heard the phrase before the satanic verses. Okay? Solomon Rushdie, a guy who wrote this book called The Satanic Verses in 1988, I think, or 80s. And it's actually a novel based upon a, uh, some of these verses found in the Quran that, that, that he called the satanic verses. Others have called them that too. And um, the idea is that these are, these are things that Muhammad put into the, the holy book. By mistake, and what he was hearing when he put it in was Satan, not Allah. So later, when they figured that out, Gabriel came and said, No, that wasn't it, it's this instead. Okay, so you get the picture. One example of, of abrogated verses that are called the satanic verses is, is, is a story called the story of the crane, and he's talking to some people in the area of Mecca and Medina, and they're polytheistic, they're worshipping a whole bunch of gods, and he's telling them they should only worship Allah, and here's the quote that he says to them, have you considered the lat, and the uzah, and the manat, those are three words that we don't use, they're, it's actually descriptions, those are the names of birds, Okay. Which and he follows with they are beautiful high-ranking birds and their intercession is anticipated. I don't know what that means, but he's obviously beautiful high-ranking birds and their intercession. Okay, here's the thing: he makes a statement. And it goes in his holy writings. Now the people in the area liked what they heard. They were polytheistic. What they didn't, what he didn't realize, or don't know what was going on here. I really do think he was listening to Satan. Okay. But what was going on is those three birds also happened to be names of that, that community's local bird goddesses. So this guy who was saying, worship no one but Allah, and then he's now praising the names of these three local goddesses. He doesn't realize that till later, but the local people are going, hey, great, we might be able to follow this guy. Now later, people came in and said, oops, Oh, that, really, that wasn't God. That was Satan getting in there, and that, so we crossed that out. That's what an abrogated verse is. That's one way um, of, of um, abrogation, and that's called, I would say, Muhammad's mistakes. They would not characterize it in those terms. In fact, me for me to call it Muhammad's mistakes would be highly inflammatory. It's not my desire to be highly inflammatory with you, it's to be truthful. Okay? So, all right, second thing is, the second category of abrogation is where Allah has actually changed his mind. Okay? Allah is not bound by his own revelations. Yesterday he can say something, but today he can change his mind, and now we have a different, you know, when I say something totally different, it can nullify whatever else I said. That's kind of the, the thinking. Now, many of the often quoted verses you hear in our culture and in our media that would talk about the peace of Islam and it being a loving faith are actually abrogated verses. They've been canceled out by something later. You don't hear that, though or the person making the statement has only found the verse and doesn't understand how the faith of Islam actually works and is led. And of course, that is risky when your political leaders of any faith and of any party will um, follow their own narrative rather than finding the truth by doing some digging to find out what's actually being taught. I think it's important for us to pray for our leaders. They need heaven-directed wisdom and we live in a time when narratives, when li- narratives, are king. And uh, do you know what I mean by that? Narratives that are out there. I mean, I think we have narratives. Everybody has a narrative, and we want our narrative to be what drives us. When what needs to drive us is the Word of God. Amen. So, knowing which verses in the Quran um, are abrogated and nullify other verses is actually a Quranic science. I'm going to take a stab at this. It's called Al Nasik Wal Mansuk. And the word just basically means um, abrogating, abrogated verses. Here's a quote from one Muslim scholar about abrogation. Allah is absolutely free and unrestricted, even in the realm of truth. He is free to abrogate truth of earlier revelations by subsequently revealed truths. He is free to judge the same act as good in one circumstance and evil in another according to the situation. You know, I think we ask ourselves the question when we see things that happen in the news and we say, how can how can anybody claiming to follow any God justify what, that, what they just did? And the answer is, we, we cannot understand that until we understand abrogation. That the God that the terrorists serve changes his mind. Which is totally different than the God that we, we know. You know, uh, we understand. Understand God to be consistent. We understand the Word of God to be a perfect source of revelation. It's inerrant in its original translation. It's it's consistent. It's it's absolute. Jesus Jesus even said, you know, heaven and earth may pass away, but my word will never pass away. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. I want ice cream cards for this. (laughs) You know, our our denomination wants this scripture up on the wall for good reason. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. In the last century, a little over a century, there have been all kinds of cults that have popped up because somebody came with some new revelation, some new scripture, some new testament. And uh, Jesus Christ is same yesterday, and, and, and here's the one I love a lot is Malachi 3.6. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Wow, that's pretty right clear. I do not change, God says. So... Solitarsis is this—he's um, our guy, and he's—he's—he's he's, he's this impossible guy. He, he'll never get saved, kind of guy. And we know he's angry, and he's wealthy, and he's educated, and he's religious, and he's justifying what he's doing is terror by these—you know—by his own religion. So, having established, you know, his the whole how deep a hole he's in, and how impossible it is for the Lord, uh, for us to see him. But what's impossible with with man is possible with the Lord, right? Okay, Acts nine verse three. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. When I read this, I'm thinking, God must really want this guy saved, because he went into a really unusual circumstance. I mean, I mean, to get this guy's attention to bring him to faith. And I'm so glad for that because aren't you because when you think of of, of your loved ones, people that you know, relationships, friends, um, that you think they're, they're so far, this is never gonna, they're, never gonna, they're never gonna get saved, but the Holy Spirit can do anything to get that person's attention. So that son or daughter or spouse who is so far gone into addiction or whatever that you think there's just no way, God can suddenly break through. Verse four, then he fell to the ground. I wonder if he stumbled because of gravity. <laughs> I think my opinion, my guess is that this loving spirit hand of God <laughs> just kind of gently went, Saul. I'm not going to hurt you, but you, Saul, and he's down there on the floor going, Whoa, what, "What is going on?" You know, you can picture his hands and legs. I picture. This, okay. Anyway. <laughs> I mean, and and God just says, okay, I'm going to put you on the ground, Saul. And it's not a physical thing. I'm literally going to squeeze out of you your pride and your anger and your trust in wealth and your trust in your knowledge and this religious pride. And Saul got nothing now but squeaks. You know. Listen, I've not been dropped by a bright light on the road to Damascus before but I have experienced the Holy Spirit putting me in a place where everything else no longer matters except the presence of the king. And Saul is in this place, and um, it's a holy, holy, wonderful, terribly hard moment. And all of a sudden, what was impossible with man, in a touch, God gets in there miraculously. And this heart cracks open. And inside that heart is <laughs> something incredible. And there are lots of things in that moment that Jesus could have said to him. Hey, tough guy. You want some of this? <laughs> He's, lots of stuff he could have said. You know, and, here's, and, and it says, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, 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 shh, be still. Hold on here. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why? And scripture says, and Saul said, who are you, Lord? I mean, impossible cases. Who are they in your mind? Who who is beyond hope in your mind? Uh, You know, and he says, who are you, Lord? And he's saying, you know, hey, who who are you? I mean, persecuting you? I didn't even know you existed a minute ago and then the lord said i'm jesus whom you're persecuting it's hard for you to kick against the goads interesting statement so there it is saul finally gets past his own narrative and his heart cracks open and he he encounters the truth not truth as we view it but the truth I'm the way and the truth and the life. The truth. He encounters truth. So he's trembling and astonished. He said, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you're going to be told what to do. (laughs) So here's this guy. He's on this mission of terror headed to Damascus and he gets stopped by the Lord and we discover from Jesus' comments that he's been experiencing something that Jesus calls the, 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 the goads of conviction going on here. Now, just for context, a goad would be, typically would be this stick. And on one end, it would be sh- sharpened to a point. And if the goat wasn't going where you wanted it, you'd go... <laughs> you'd poke him. And of course, the goat wouldn't like it. So it would so we'd either move out of the way, or it would kick you, Right? So you poke the goat and it starts kicking. What do you do? You stick that goat in there and let him kick the goat. It hurts. And if the goat is stubborn, it might kick three or four times. And every time it kicks, it hurts. Paul is kicking the goat. And Jesus is saying, that that hurts, doesn't it? That hurts, doesn't it? Doesn't it? (laughs) It's like lovingly way, he's saying, that that hurts. Stop it. So these goads of conviction You know, Saul is chasing Christians down, and he's everywhere he goes, he's encountering these Jewish converts to Christ. And what he sees in these people is different than the other Jews he sees walking around. He sees peace in them, he sees hope in them, he sees something of joy in them, he sees something of confidence about their eternity. He sees something, and he looks at them and he's thinking, You're not supposed to be happy. You're not supposed to have this peace and this faith. Goad. He's being poked. He was there when Stephen gets stoned. Scripture describes Stephen. It says his face was like the face of an angel. He's being executed by a terrible, grisly ma- His face shined. <laughs> he looked like an angel. And then here's this. That's a goad. And then Stephen, he hears Stephen's last word. Stephen says, hey, God, into, into, you, into your hands I command my soul. Same words as Jesus. And then he says, Lord, don't hold this again. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. Saul of Tarsus is hearing these goad, goad in his ear, goad in his heart, goad in his eyes, and and the love of Christ is holding him on the ground, and he's saying, Saul, it hurts to kick against the goats, doesn't it? Saul has never seen that kind of faith and graciousness, and, and every time he sees it, it adds up in his mind, in his memory, in his heart, and it's haunting him. And once you've had this kind of a serious encounter with Christ, you are not the same. And, you know, Jesus, the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus, they just kind of follow you. It's like, and I think Saul couldn't sleep at night. I think there was all kinds of stuff going on there. It's hard to kick against the goads, isn't it, Saul? So let's finish talking about this. But let's examine a guy named Ananias. Um, up until now, God has, 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 on his own, supernaturally been dealing with Saul, okay? Light personal visitation, supernatural stuff going on, and now he's going to use a human instrument, okay? Um, Acts 9, verse 10. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight. Now, I, I I think at this point Ananias is probably pretty amped up He's pretty stoked. Wow, I'm being visited by the Savior. You know, wouldn't you be pretty jazzed about a supernatural? Okay, so, you know, Ananias, yes, Lord. He says, I got a mission for you. Great. I'm waiting. I'm available, Lord, you know. Okay, get up. No problem. I'm up. (laughs) Go to the street called Straight. Sounds good so far. I know where that is. I live here. Just down the street. The verse continues on. And inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. All of a sudden, the floor drops out. (laughs) Ananias' heart now has dropped its sunk silence. Dead silence. He's not all that excited anymore. Verse 12, and in a vision he has seen, this is the Lord talking still, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. (laughs) Wait, Saul is dreaming about me? That's not good. Okay. Ananias is not real happy to hear this. He's thinking about me. Then Ananias and said, Lord, I've heard many have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. You know, no thanks, Lord. <laughs> Listen. I know about this guy. I've been reading about him in the papers. Are you sure? I I know about this guy. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Ananias hears about Saul, and immediately he sticks a label on Saul over his life. He's an evil man. I know how much harm he's done. And Jesus has to say to Ananias, yeah, okay, that's who he was. Now I want to show you who he's going to be. He's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name for the world. So now here's my question. What labels have you erected over certain people that you know? What, what labels have you erected over certain people in distant places? Impossible, unreachable, they'll never come to Christ, how much evil and harm. God, you probably don't even want them. And the Lord would say, I want to pull down that label. I want to pull down the label that you've got on that person because they're a chosen vessel of mine. Because what I do is I transform people. And I got a feeling that some of us right this moment are hearing the Lord speaking that to us about labels we put on somebody that we love. Or maybe somebody that we hate. When we, when we th- would ever say about any person, oh, he'll never change, that's 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 an example of us presuming too much and believing too little. Because God can do anything with anyone. And Saul's life just screams that out to us. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure that some of us here were at some time that impossible person. You know, And we're the very people that others might have looked at us and said, there's no way that person's ever going to be a Christian. Yet, here you are because of Jesus. I, I wonder about some of those early saints in Jerusalem and Damascus if they ever sat around and said, hey, wouldn't it really be cool if Saul of Tarsus got saved? (laughs) I don't know if they had that discussion. I mean, have you ever had that kind of a daydream about somebody in politics or in movies or something? (laughs) I mean, think about that. Wouldn't it be great if they got saved? And God takes an impossible case and turns it into an impossible conversion And because there's not anybody anywhere in any circumstances that is beyond the possibility of God touching them. That needs to be our lens. Our lens. That every person is a spiritual opportunity that might be disguised as an impossibility. Let's pray. So Lord, um, I think um, I want to first wait upon the king Who might be speaking to hearts right now, that you would be testifying in in hearts as we're all praying with our eyes closed, Lord, that you would be speaking to hearts right now saying, you have resisted me, but I want to save you. I want to give you eternal life. That there are people in this room hearing these words that are saying, I need to be right with God, and I'm not, but I want to be right with God. I want my name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I would like to know, but I just have resisted, resisted, resisted. But this is the day of my salvation. Scripture says all who call on the name of Christ will be saved. If you want to call on the name of Christ, I just want to pray with you and I won't embarrass you. And I'm looking around the room. Any here who would like open their heart to the king today, right now, would you just look up at me and let me pray with you? Give me a little hand wave if I don't miss you, if I miss you. Okay. Oh, it's good to give an opportunity. And now, Lord, would you speak to our hearts about our heart, not about somebody else, but about our heart towards them. I love the fact, God, that we can go for weeks and talk about security, that we can learn, that we can have a place of security for eternity with you and eternity security for our family and physically, Lord, in our nation and how to understand the things that we see, the signs of our times. But that, Lord, the bottom line here is that you are after people. That, God, you sent your Son to save us. Help us to see the people that you came to save the same way you do. Rather than through our experiences and maybe our prejudices and not as according to our narrative, Lord, but according to your word. Help us to see people the way you do. I'm I'm, I'm grateful, Lord, and I pray, Lord, that we as a group of people would stand up um, to the task, God, as men and women of God, to be involved in this somehow under your prayer and uh, under your guidance and your direction and power. We love, Lord, that you can work on people supernaturally as you did with Saul, but we also see that you use people. Lord, help us, God, to take the labels down that would say impossible, unreachable, too evil, too hard, and to be available. In Jesus' name. You are the Lord.